This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, April 4th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And The Gist has been nominated for three Webby Awards. There are 14 podcast categories. We were nominated for Best Host, Best Interview, and Best Writing. See, I think we had a shot in the Best Recap Show category. Our offshoot podcast, The Gist Gist. I thought that had a chance. Now, I don't know if you've heard the gist gist. It's just a copy of the gist, but it's recorded at double speed. So we push it out to you at double speed. And then when you play it at two times speed, you can listen to a 20 minute podcast in five minutes. Yes, I know that the promo codes for the great courses plus tend to fly by, but it is a time saving idea. Sadly, it is not nominated. But the gist was nominated thrice. Very nice to be nominated. You can vote in the People's Voice Awards. So please vote. We, the most nominated podcast, are in last place in all the categories. I don't want to be color purpled here. Okay, I'm not sure the same dynamics oppressing the color purple would be oppressing the gist. So I don't want to be remains of the dade here. They did not win any awards either. I would like, though, like the remains of the day to be made into a lunchbox and mentioned in Guffman. Here's the thing. I've been looking at these Webby Awards. So there are 14 podcasting awards. That's very manageable. But the Webbies give out, I think, 338 different awards, which means our fellow nominees include the New York Times, the Airbnb app, Chloe Cardogian, the Bud Light Dive Bar Tour, How to Raise a Black Child, Shout Your Abortion, the Oscar Health Insurance sign-up page, the Frankfurt Zoo, and Zach Galifianakis. And the crazy thing is, that is my exact browser history from a week ago. But since this is an award about anything on the internet, and since the internet is basically everything, I think you could expand the awards. Like, Best Smartphone Key, K, E, the Eggplant Emoji. The tilde, the question mark, the yen sign, or gigantic YouTube star that I may have just made up, Cupid doll, Game Zondo, Annoying David, or Ashley Mumbles. What, you've never heard of them? Oh my God, they each get paid more than anyone you ever have heard of, and everyone under 16 years old follows them. They each have 43 million followers. The most annoying thing on the internet, people who bought a shovel also bought Homeland Season 3, or... I'd like you to join my LinkedIn network, or you won't believe what these former child stars look like because apparently you don't understand the process of aging, or at real Donald Trump. Well, we hope not to be in the category of most annoying things on the internet, but if we are, don't worry, it'll all be over in like five minutes, especially if you use the Stitcher triple speed option on the Just Just podcast. You can get out of here in like four minutes, 13 seconds. On the show today, I explain what the Susan Rice unmasking story means tailored to your particular capacity for ideological discomfort. But first, an update on what became of the most important baseball draft class. Not in the history of baseball, but in the history of writing about statistics in baseball front offices. Moneyball was the book. Tabitha Soren is the photographer. She talks about photographs like Kevin Euclid draws walks. What I'm saying is, 
She's virtuosic and she's up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. In 2003, Tabitha Soren began photographing the players just drafted by the Oakland A's. Why? Because she bleeds green and gold? Nope. Because her nickname, you might not know this, was Catfish Soren? Again, no. It's because these were the guys featured in Moneyball, a book being written by her husband, Michael Lewis, and Soren was interested in the visual, as one might surmise from the last letter of her former employer, MTV. So Soren took the photographs and others and tracked these guys through the years. You know, some made it to the show, as they say. Some had arm problems. Some had false starts. Some simply didn't have enough talent to make it. And it's now in this new collection called Fantasy Life Baseball and the American Dream Photographs by Tabitha Soren. Hi. Welcome. Hi. So what is your sports background? How interested were you? I certainly was not nicknamed Catfish. No. <laughs> uh, but I do get the reference, which... I would not have 15 years ago, probably. Well, it's A's royalty. If I mentioned a different nickname, Three Fingers Brown, maybe. No, <laughs> no yes. still not. Also, that would be bad for a photographer. Uh, that would be. <laughs> I am not that sporty. My relationship to sports at this point is uh, through my children mm-hmm. and my husband, who when we first met, somehow it came up that he doesn't watch sports on TV. He promised me, and of course he's turned it into a career. So now every time the TV's on and they're monopolizing it with some yeah. sort of sports, it's like, quote unquote, work. Yeah. Paying the mortgage. Well, I got to say, not so he watches sports on TV and for maybe most husbands, you know, maybe people listening to this will go, yeah, that's a drag. Except your husband watches sports on a TV in a, on the TV in a way that taught us all a different way to watch sports on the TV. So I'm glad he. Yeah, watches that's what sports. he says. No, 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 it's true. <laughs> it's true. You know, right? His well, I just didn't know what I was getting into. Mm-hmm. I certainly didn't know what I was getting into with the start of this book. I thought that I was actually with this draft class because I knew how hard it was to play in college because I had gone to college. I thought I was with winners. I thought these people were all destined to play for the major league team that I had yeah, watched. Yeah. And it turns out, as you probably know, that only 6% of them make it to the major league. So when I saw their faces, though, visually, they they all looked so full of purpose and hope, and they were thrilled to be there. But eventually, as time went on, the idea of just photographing their faces and having it be a real portrait-oriented project just didn't work out. It just, I found it kind of boring and they took good care of themselves so they didn't change all that much uh, physically. And I really wound up making a story about fallibility and, and the consequences of falling from grace and, uh, and the fact that, you know, finding meaning in your life after you've lost the one thing that you really love and that has defined your life until that point is a real test of character. And so as interested in, in, 
them as, you know, who were they going to be in baseball? How are they going to make their name in baseball? I was also interested in what they were going to become after baseball. Because the point, if uh, people are only marginally knowledgeable about sports, the point about thinking that they made it, you could be excused for that because the other drafts, the NFL draft, the especially the NBA draft, if sports or if professional sports are a funnel, those drafts probably represent the narrow end of the funnel. I mean, there are only two rounds or, or thir- 60 players taken in the NBA draft. They have a strong chance of making the team. In fact, it's likely that everyone taken in the NBA draft will play sometime in the NBA, whereas baseball is the large end of the funnel. And dreams are dashed. And if you're taken in the 26th round, you might only make the $15,000 signing that you make or, you know, the less than minimum wage, literally, that you get paid. You know, and if the if the goal is to make it in the show or Major League Baseball, Jeremy Brown's in the book and he was in a big part of Moneyball. I played for five games. So there's no retirement fund there. He has to work at night, but think Hueytown, Alabama. Right. Well, he went to Hueytown, Alabama, because that's where he grew up and he wanted to be there. He's the only player out of the 21 who actually uh, retired rather than was released. So he really was somebody who Billy Bean, the manager of the Oakland A's, thought that should stick around and that it was inevitable for him to be, you know, right behind the substitute catcher at this point. But at that point, Jeremy's personal life was falling apart and he wanted to go back to Alabama and fix things. There's this pretty well-known story that when Jeremy Brown was called up by the A's to be drafted, he thought it was a crank call and he hung up on them. Even though he had won the Johnny Bench Award in college. Best I mean, catcher he's, in college baseball, yeah. So uh, he thinks he just couldn't really believe in himself. And I think that with the, the stakes so high and with so few people getting to the major leagues, you do have to have a fantasy of yourself making it or you won't make it. One of my favorite pictures is of pitcher Ben Fritz. And during the summer or during spring training, it is so hot in Arizona that they – cut off practice pretty early in the day so that they don't have to be in full sun. So they all go to the motel pool and play cards or swim. And so I have this picture of Ben Fritz in the pool and he looks like a drowning hero and (laughs) doesn't have anything directly to do with baseball, but it does act as a metaphor for all of us trying to stay afloat. You know, my, my work in general is about sort of the difficult twists and turns of just everyday living and how we push ourselves forward even when there's tragedy involved. And this fits into that exactly. Yeah. And so does the uh, the tobacco embedded in the piece of gum. Now, to be fair, that is the double play of dugout detritus. Uh, if there's tobacco in gum and if there's a piece of sunflower seed in there, that's considered the triple play. Yeah. yeah. And the unassisted triple play is when you're, it's all in the mouth at the same time. I just had never seen it. And this one, I traced, it popped out, or I mean, it was spit out of Nick Swisher's mouth. So he's one of my players. Mm -hmm. So he's in the Cleveland Indians dugout. And I can still see the teeth marks of his. So I thought, (laughs) it's a portrait. Yeah. and I, But I did have to, because the light was low and there were people's feet in the way, and it took a while. And Nick is like, man, you always got the camera pointed the wrong way. <laughs> right, right, right. Because he's used to people uh, chronicling his great hey. athletic achievements. <laughs> yes, exactly. or his face. Yeah, not my, <laughs> not my smiley tooth marks face. On, the, on the piece of gum. The biggest challenge that I had in taking these pictures yeah. was of the game. Yeah. We are saturated with these beautiful shots of home runs 
you know, these amazing slides into home. And we see them in ESPN magazine. We see them in Sports Illustrated. And and they're just all over the place. And I really didn't feel like we needed any more of them. Glory shots. Well, yeah. Yeah. And it's I mean, they look very similar to each other because these photographers are put in wells beside the dugouts and they all have to use long lenses. And it's for safety reasons, but it's also pretty restrictive in terms of feeling like a creative person. So I decided that I would shoot action shots in a different way. And I shot them as tintypes for the most part. And tintypes the process, it's a very old process, was invented in 1853. And the first baseball contest I just came across in research happened in 1846. It's not the first game because I know that's disputed, but mm-hmm. the first contest was only seven years earlier. So I thought, well... Was this the one in Pittsfield, Massachusetts? Already we're out of my desk. <laughs> okay, okay. Okay, so... <laughs> yes. Um, I thought, well, if these things come into the world around the same time, maybe I can merge the two things. So in the book, there are a lot of pictures that look really old. They look antique. They're brown. And it's because they're a photograph. I I take a piece of metal. I paint emulsion on it. And then I shoot through this very 8 by 10 large camera. Yeah. And it's good to see baseball photographed as if Matthew Brady were photographing it. That's kind of cool. And the last thing I want to ask is, did you realize the role of injuries? Because there are so many pictures of a guy with a doctor or a guy with his arm or you even have a picture of, is it an MRI or an x-ray? Yes. So you have to include that. That's the story. In fact, sometimes the guys who make it and the guys who don't can pretty well maps onto the guys who had serious injuries and the guys who didn't. Absolutely. I think that the role of chance It's not luck exactly because it's, you know, some people just feel like they have good luck. I think luck always sounds positive, but it's really chance because Ben Fritz was the one guy who the scouts and the statisticians agreed upon would be the guy to make it. And he's one of in my draft class. And his college coach was so excited about how well he was pitching that he just kept pitching him and pitching him. And Ben kept saying yes and yes because he's a nice guy and he didn't want to, you know, disappoint the coach. And he cared about the team and he wanted the team to do well. And then he shows up hurt his first spring training for a major league for the professional baseball team. And he had Tommy John surgery, wasn't as fast after that. And then he had another surgery after that. So he finally gets his speed up faster than what he was pitching as a youngster and he gets a tryout with um thinking it's the giants but mm-hmm. it might not be uh he spends spring training with them and they don't sign him even though his numbers are better than they've ever been because he's now 29 yeah so yeah you know Tommy he's john surgery in his rear view right yeah. exactly yeah. and so the idea of the sacrifice that americans are willing to make for a goal or for a particular purpose, this irresistible ambition that we have is demonstrated through a lot of the injuries, but also the sacrifice, the risk that you're taking. So to put a really fine point on this, two years ago, I had a solo exhibit in L.A. of this work in a commercial gallery, and I made a sculpture of all the bone spurs that the boys had given me over the years. A couple of years ago, they changed the law, so I can no longer collect body specimens from people who have surgery. But until that, that point, did you get caught up in the Hannibal Lecter law? Is that what's was, going on? I still have them. Yeah, and and you know, I formaldehyded them. I tried, I bleached them. I tried to get the smell to go away, but they still smell like body parts for sure. <laughs> but I put them on a piece of blue velvet in a vitrine, a plastic cover, and it looked like a constellation of stars. But to me, it was a constellation of aches and pains and sacrifice and how these 
guys are actually yeah. giving up parts of their body yeah. for the game. Although if constellations were named after the mythology at the time, in a way it's like a constellation because these guys are the mythical figures of our day. Exactly. We'd rename the constellations Aaron and Ruth if we had the chance. Probably. Yeah. Fantasy. I actually know who those are. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Fantasy Life. Baseball and the American Dream. Photographs by Tabitha Soren. It's an aperture book. The good ones often are. Thank you so much. Great to meet you, Tabitha. Thank you. And now, the spiel. Perhaps you've been hearing about the latest update on the Donald Trump Russia probe. Bloomberg reporter Eli Lake found out that during the transition from Obama to Trump, intercepts picked up conversations that the U.S. was monitoring among presumably Russians. And when the Russians would talk about Americans, or in some cases actually talk to Americans, those names of the Americans would be written down but then redacted or masked. Otherwise, when you think about it, it's like the U.S. is surveilling its own citizens and you can't do that. But Susan Rice asked to find out what the names were. Susan Rice, former national security advisor. Now, doing this, finding out those names, unmasking the names, is legal, could be helpful, but could also, depending on Susan Rice's motivations, be problematic. Now, in saying all that, what I think and what I hope I've done is to explain a complicated story as easily as possible. Now, how complicated is it? Well, dig this from Fox. Now, these names were part of incidental electronic surveillance of candidate and president-elect Donald Trump and people close to him, including family members, for up to a year before he took office. Ah, okay, got it. Now, this story, depending on where you read it and what media universe you reside in, is either a nothing burger, a cyanide burger, or maybe it's like a salmon burger with a little too much spicy mayo. So that's too bad, but it's probably good for you in high in omega-3s. So what I'm going to do, for the first time ever on The Gist, is to unveil a state-of-the-art technology. We're going to report the story to you based on your worldview. Whatever your worldview already is, you'll get that version of the story. Are you a moderate Democrat, a moderate Republican, a think-progress salon-type liberal, an alt-right mouth-frother? Have we got the news for you. For the moderate Democrat or Republican perspective, press or say one, marque numero uno. So Susan Rice revealed or unmasked names picked up in surveillance. The first thing to know is that this in no way advances Donald Trump's evidence-free claim that Trump Tower was surveilled by Obama. Here is the author of the report, Eli Lake, on today's Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. I think Trump in the White House believes that this in many ways vindicates his tweet that said that that Obama had illegally tapped uh, Trump Tower. I I make it pretty clear that it doesn't. This is not the same as tapping... um, Trump's communications or his associates' communications without a warrant. But Lake points out that there could be nefarious reasons for Rice's unmasking. Or there could be really practical reasons. Two Russians are discussing that they're conversing with a figure close to Trump. That's in the national security interest. Rice is tasked with figuring out what's in the national security interest. She wants to find out who this individual is. Of course, there are civil liberty concerns with unmasking Americans willy-nilly or Mikey Flinney. 
So it's a losing game to guess what Rice's motivations were. Though I do think this information does fill in some of the gaps around what Devin Nunez was thinking. The story goes like this. Rice unmasked. The current White House found out that Rice unmasked. The White House told Nunez that Rice's fingerprints were on this. He tried to make something of that. He did so, let us say, inelegantly. Thank you, reasonable Republican or Democrat, for listening. May I suggest the television programs The News Hour, Jake Tapper, and CBS Sunday Morning. For the alt-right perspective, press number two, or marque numero, numero, no, just press two. Hashtag unmaskate. This story stolen, stolen from Mike Chernovich, patriot, blogger, make America great again guy, shows that Susan Rice is using underhanded means that might be illegal to cast doubt on Trump staffers who are just doing their jobs. You know Susan Rice. She's dirty. Okay, okay. But listen, here's the advice. When you talk to people who just think Senor Pepe is a cute frog, don't say dirty. Say it like this. Rice has been a bit controversial before on Sunday shows. You might remember back in 2012. She blamed the Benghazi attack on a video, and also at a different time, she claimed Bo Bergdahl served with honor and distinction. So, Melissa, a lot here. This is abuse of power. This needs to be investigated. These revelations prove Trump was essentially right to complain about surveillance. The conversations that his people were having were perfectly legal. And and he never said wiretapping was illegal wiretapping. Maybe Trump said it once, but he was just exaggerating to draw attention on this really important point that there was real illegality here. And the illegality was unmasking these names, then leaking them to the press. And that is why Flynn had to walk the plank. It was all because of politics. Thanks for listening. You might enjoy such TV personalities as the Fox and Friends, Judge Jeanine Pirro, and WWE Raw. For the more liberal perspective, press number three. Marque numero tres. Let me tell you a little bit about Mike Chernovich, who Donald Trump Jr. today tweeted should get the Pulitzer Prize for breaking this story. He was perhaps the most high-profile disseminator of the Pizzagate story, He's always accusing his enemies, which mean basically every Democrat or non-Trump Republican, accusing them of being pedophiles. He was also the main guy advancing the rumor that Hillary Clinton was sick and dying. He wrote a self-help book called Guerrilla Mindset for men who want to, quote, unleash the animal within. This guy is the trolliest of trolls. Here's a quote from The New Yorker. I use trolling tactics to build my brand. That's him. That's where this story comes from. Furthermore, there was nothing illegal about Rice's unmasking. Sure, there's an abstract civil liberties point, but what's the bigger civil liberties threat? Finding out a name when the transition team is talking to the Russians? Or the very fact that the transition team is chatting with the Russians? Rice did nothing illegal, nothing unethical, nothing to in any way vindicate Trump's crazy wiretapping claims. Unmasked names can be very helpful for national security, and in this case, I think they were. Some shows you might like include Real Time with Bill Maher, Rachel Maddow, and Pod Save America. Well, thanks, just listeners. I hope the technology worked for you. I know the alt-right guys didn't like the uh, Spanish version of the Marque Numero Dos. Some shows I think you might enjoy are The Gist, Trumpcast, Lawfare, and The Ringer Baseball Podcast. The Ringer Baseball Podcast. Not at all about politics, but uh, it is baseball season, and I like those guys. The gist was produced by Chris Berube. I think his vote for best social native advertising might go to Love Notes from Target. The gist was also produced by Mary Wilson. Hit randomly generate. 
And she's really hankering to vote for in the mobile sites and apps, fashion and beauty category, perfect 365 mobile digital makeup. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Oh, but he's a true devotee of best social community building and engagement nominee. Give a beep. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. He kicks himself constantly that he didn't greenlight Webby nominee in the film and video music category. The inside story of when Run DMC met Aerosmith and changed music forever. The gist hoping to take down Chloe Kardagian in the social animals category. I don't care if it's Lionel the Hedgehog or Goats of Anarchy, we're taking down Kardagian. They're all very social animals, though. Doom Peru, 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 and thanks for listening.